Hi, I'm Graham Barrett, and it's great to be with you on this latest episode of Marketing Futures, a series of the C-Suite podcast that we're producing in partnership with SAP. We're interviewing some of the sharpest minds in the retail and e-commerce sectors to gain a snapshot of brand thinking and strategy in these post-pandemic times. In this episode, we're going to channel the discussion around omni-channel and retain an interest in customer loyalty. And the reason for that is because we have two influential leaders in this space. Graham Johnston, Senior Director, Omnichannel Customer Support at Asda, and Jennifer Hoth, Head of Global Loyalty Marketing and CRM at ASICS. Jim Clark, Commercial Research Director at eConsultancy, has explored these issues in putting together reports such as Retail Experiences of the Future, commissioned by SAP. We'll hear more about this report from Jim today. And completing our stellar lineup is Mark Shaker, Marketing Director at SAP Partner Mention Me, author of the acclaimed book, Boring to Brave and Champion of Customer Advocacy. Welcome to you all. Really looking forward to the conversation today. Jim, if I could come to you first. In the e-consultancy report, you talk about the four pillars of best practice in retail. And one of these is putting the customer at the heart. How are brands doing this today? That's a great question to start off today's session. But just as a background, I'll just give you a bit of context for the report that we're going to be referencing throughout the session. For a start, it's based on in-depth interviews with nine senior retail industry thought leaders, full list of them uh, that you'll see actually in the report. But it was split evenly across North America, EMEA and APAX. And we timed them, and it was quite difficult to get through to them because they're very busy, towards the end of the 2021 holiday shopping season. So that way we could really get a sense of what strategies worked, what didn't. The idea that we could take that information and put that into uh, what we call guiding pillars to help direct retailers to greater success in 2022. So enough of a preamble for that, but it's a great pillar to start with. So putting the customer at the heart, you could say it's partly a response to the flight to digital, that the habits that we picked up over the pandemic haven't gone away. Despite the world opening up, we're really still revolving around digital. It's it's increasingly about sort of connecting the two, blending the two experiences together and being present where the customer needs you. And I think the report put it quite well in the sense that we're getting increasingly frazzled and we need to experience brands a slightly different way like that. I think a great example was uh, trying to buy a PlayStation 5. I won't go into too much detail, but it was so painful. I couldn't get it to a, the, the e-commerce experience to work properly. I couldn't get customer experience. But this contrasts with examples like Curry's, which we feel featured in a case study in uh, the report, which talked about shop life, which if you've got a problem, if you want to ask a question, you can click through and speak to a trained sales associate, a real human being in a video call. Uh, I mean, for some people that might seem like a nightmare, but for me, I'd have loved to have been able to do that when I was trying to buy that uh, games console for starters. But it gives you the reassurance that the peace of mind if something is going wrong, or if you simply want to learn more about a product. And certainly throughout the research, and that's one of the reasons why we put together this as a, as a pillar, that, that this is increasingly a linchpin for communicating brand values. Definitely when we spoke to George Jensen, that's a Danish luxury brand, Will Lockie, who's the head of digital, was saying that this really has been a really important way for them to get across their uber cool Danish credentials, um, particularly as they're looking to sell more luxurious products. Mark, love to come to you now. How has your extensive experience in B2B marketing informed your thoughts on customer loyalty and advocacy? Yeah, it's a good question. B2B and the 
the, the rise of big data sort of in the last 10, 15 years and the evolution of marketing technology has given, has given birth to some of the most brilliant marketing transformations, business transformations. For the book, I spoke to Scott Brinker, the chief martech.com guy, who called it a golden era, a golden age of marketing. And to a certain extent, I don't think there's anybody that would disagree in terms of the access we all have to these numbers and the data and the insights that, that, that they can that they can provide. But I think what I'd say when it comes to customer advocacy and loyalty is that loyalty is not a number. It's not a score. It's not a box on a spreadsheet. It's a human emotion, right? It's a human sentiment. It's very, very difficult to generate. And my, my worry for marketing is sometimes that I think we over-report what we think we know based on numbers. We go into important meetings to speak to our bosses and to reassure them that we're on the right track because of a number. If you think about who you're loyal to or who or what you are loyal to, I asked this question at a conference about two weeks ago. And I said to the audience, who or what are you loyal to? Think brands, think anything. The answers came back, you know, my wife, my husband, my kids maybe a football team. Very rarely did anybody say a brand. In fact, one person mentioned a brand that meant a lot to her because it was a skincare brand and it, you know, she had a very, very trusting relationship. But people aren't really loyal to brands. And I think in the age of bigger data, there's a risk that the numbers on spreadsheets become divorced from the end users they represent, their values, their beliefs, their lifestyles, right? Their version of what a relationship with brands should look like. And crucially, what the next best action to engage them should be. So B2B marketing vendors, we have an amazing set of data that we can tell you brands about your customers. But we're also getting very much better at being guides for what that genuinely means in customer world. And as an industry, I think we need fresh thoughts on that. I think we need a new perspective and a shift towards twinning first-party data with more deeper and more innovative partnerships that get us close to the or closer to the, the kind of customer stories that they themselves would recognize and buy into and participate. And I think when you're talking advocacy and loyalty, huge strides have been made with AI and data science. We can track and measure a whole lot now. But what we work hard at, certainly it mentioned me, but I think necessarily across the industry, is making sure that they relate to, we can give the data to the marketer, but also the reassurance that we understand what this means about the customer and the world they want to live in. Yeah, well, let's turn to you now, Jennifer, because this is completely your world, isn't it, in terms of uh, managing the customer at ASICS. What I'd be interested to hear from your point of view, Jim mentioned kind of online versus the physical store as we emerge out of the pandemic. How important now are the ASICS physical stores in terms of customer engagement and customer retention? Sure, certainly. And, and it might be a little bit different in terms of, of course, ASICS is global. I oversee uh, global market or loyalty and CRM. Physical stores aren't as prevalent in the U.S. as they are in other areas of the world. This is a very interesting topic for me. I am currently at the Customer Relationship Management Conference in Chicago right now. And I had some really great conversations last night about this aspect in physical stores. So when it comes to footwear, especially, and you know, running shoes, what ASICS is known for, it is very important to make sure you get the right fit. It's one thing if you are an existing customer and you buy the same style of shoe every time, that's not going to change. But for those that are dipping their toes into just running for the first time, or they just want a really comfortable sneaker, it's really important, especially for shoes, to make sure that they fit you correctly. And obviously, 
it's harder to get that experience online. So having an in-store presence is really important. You'll be able to talk to experts in the store about, you know, they'll be able to see your foot and you'll be able to try on shoes and be able to talk directly with store associates about if you have running goals, whether you overpronate, underpronate, and try to figure out what the best shoe is for you. So certainly stores are definitely important and you obviously get that personal that that physical connection with the brand when you go into the store. So they are important. And like I said, it's a little bit of a different story in terms of our store footprint in the United States where I could see stores evolving into pop-ups or something along those lines or going into having a a pop-up within some of our wholesale partners and things like that, making sure, especially with the pandemic and people going more e-commerce, I don't see the physical footprint going away. Perhaps it gets a little bit smaller in terms of the size of the store, but it is very important and making sure that, again, that you you have that physical connection or that emotional connection with the consumer. Also, some of the things that we've been talking about is making sure, and I know in some of our stores, we do have associates that walk around with an iPad or different things like that that has access to data so we can talk about these are some of the shoes you purchased in the past. So certainly having people come back, creating the sense of community, they trust the store associate to recommend products for them. Stores are certainly important and not going away. Excellent. And Graham, if I could come to you, obviously, if we think about Asda, we obviously think about the physical store, the supermarket. But even for a a big supermarket chain like Asda, it's only one link in the chain, isn't it? And what I'd be really interested to hear from you, I know you have your own podcast about Omnichannel and you ask your guests for their definition of Omnichannel. Let's turn the tables. What, What is your definition of Omnichannel? Yeah, great question. Thanks for turning the tables back. I appreciate that. I, uh, it's great to put everyone under the pressure on that when they come into the podcast because you get so many different, so many different views and I've had some, some brilliant quotes and I'll, I'll, I'll come to that in a second. If I, may. I just want to build on what, what Jennifer said actually, because I actually uh, bought a pair of ASICS trainers a number of years ago for a marathon and I actually went into, it wasn't an ASICS store. It was a, it was a reseller of yours in Edinburgh. They did exactly that. They put me onto the running machine. They videoed me in the running machine. They showed me how terrible my ankles were and how I needed these sturdy, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to be technical in terms of what they did. They gave me brilliant trainers that worked really well, right? And they only could do that because they could closely see on a running machine using cameras exactly how, and there's no way you can recreate that online really, right? But I found the trainers online, I found the shop online, and obviously that went in. And so it's, it's such an important part. And I think that come and answer your question around definition of omnichannel, I've got two, right? But the, what, the lead into that really is we're right in the heart of the fourth industrial revolution right now. And some of the big innovations that are coming out of the fourth industrial revolution are essentially recombination of different technologies creating disruption. And I think that's what Omnichannel is. It's, it's the recombination of all of the existing channels that have been grown over the years through different parts of all the different industrial revolutions that have come and they've, you know, new channels and new ways of shopping and new ways of getting support have emerged, whether that's you know, physical stores, contact centers, online catalogs, whatever. They're all individual channels that have grown over time and been individually managed by a different set of contacts. What we've got now with, with, with Omnichannel is the capability of recombining combining all of those different assets into into one experience and and instead of treating every single strategy as a channel we're taking the customer 
and saying, how does that customer want to interact with that brand? And building those experiences around the customer. And it's a long-winded way of answering the question, right? I have got a quote written down here, which I was going to say, but actually, do you know what? I think, I think it is just about that. It's putting the customer at the center and building those great experiences around so that the customer can choose at any point in time when they want what combination of those existing assets or new assets a brand has by channel to be able to create that great experience, whether it's for sales, whether it's for support, uh, or whether it's for marketing. Sorry, I just want to step in and say, Graham, you're absolutely right. More brands need to start thinking and being more customer-centric because even in my career and being at different retailers and even being on the agency side prior to me coming to ASICS and back to the brand side, the way that teams are set up internally is so siloed and it's just how the companies want the consumers to interact. But especially with COVID and with retail being so volatile, that's where retailers fail is they're trying to push their own agenda. They're not listening to the consumers and trying to meet them in the areas that the consumer wants to be met. The consumer doesn't care how you're structured internally. They want to be able to reach out to you and have a relationship with you on their terms when they want and where they want. I would like to echo Jennifer and and add to this one or two minutes of worshipping at the altar of Graham Johnston. Um, (laughs) He didn't need the quote. He didn't even need the quote. The articulation he gave was exactly right. And for a long time, what we've seen is the really smart brands shift from building their business around what's going to make stakeholders money, shareholders money, and what's going to be easy and cheap and accessible to deliver to how do we build around the customer's needs? Now, that takes an awful lot of hard work. And transformation, by the way, is never a project. It's an ongoing thing. You've got to, that joining up, that process and people and all the bits internally, it's bruising, it's difficult, it's really difficult. But it's ongoing because if because customers are evolving and if you're going to meet them where they are, when they are, they, they don't think about their, whether they are having an online experience or an offline experience. They'll be typing something in, to their mobile as a direct response to something they've seen on a TV advert and they'll get up and make themselves a cup of tea in the break. And they don't consider, I've just gone from a digital experience to a very undigital experience in making this cup of tea. To them, it's just what they're doing, right? And for as long as you have the ability and the will, and it's there, it's the will to join everything up, no matter what it takes and make it easy for them. They say omni-channel is impossible, but uh, let's put Graham at the front of the queue and get him to tell the world why it's not. Well done, Graham. Oh, I'll come back here every day. I can listen to this every day. Oh, thank you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, good man. Well, let's come back to you, Graham. You're obviously the, uh, the voice of reason here today. So I think I better ask you a follow-up question here. I mean, from your perspective then, what are the barriers to setting up this kind of true omni-channel experience? Maybe we can define it, but what is stopping us doing it? I think uh, Mark just just mentioned uh, there's so many barriers to it, right? And I think it's mostly down to the way that businesses think and behave and how people think and behave. I think a lot of people put technology as the barrier and also as the answer. And that that is an enabler. Technology is definitely an enabler, but you could deploy the best omni-channel technology and still not deliver an omni-channel experience for customers because you have to get your business lined up, your people, your culture, your reward, your recognition, your business rules and business processes, and then the systems, right? Because the systems are just the enabler to it and a vital enabler, of course. But, you know, if I kind of pick out some sort of highlights of each of those different headings, I think the people and culture pieces, 
there has to be a clear strategy and people need to understand the why because especially for legacy businesses who have been around for years and have built those channels that we talked about earlier and operated in silos, the siloed thinking in each of those different channels and that's because they've been built up over the years with systems, with rewards, recognition and you know clear measures on how that particular channel it performs. So, you know, changing that culture and changing that thinking is really difficult because you're unwrapping and unwinding a years and years worth of behavioral trends on how you treat a customer. So a store manager, for example, is sometimes more often than not in retail is managed on conversion, right? And actually, if you think about that in the context of omnichannel, that is a massive barrier because what you're essentially saying is if somebody walks into your store, they must, or a certain percentage of them must walk out with a product. That's not omnichannel. That is single channel mindset and mentality. And retailers still manage individual stores on individual performance. How much footfall came in? How many sales did you make? What was the customer experience? Rather than thinking about, right, what part of that sale, what part of that interaction did you contribute to? What's the attribution of your involvement in that interaction? And how do you then sort of start to break the cycle and get people thinking about, you know, customers may come in. For that, just let's pick that ASICS example. The online team were responsible for getting, or the marketing team were responsible for getting me into the physical store. The team in the store and the technology in the store were responsible for me for getting the, the you know, to try that on. Now I bought it in the store, but I might also have gone away and thought about it and then ordered it online and had it delivered. If you look at traditional measurements of businesses, that would just have counted as an online sale and the retail team would have had absolutely no attribution to that whatsoever. Having to think about, you know, all those different barriers, a way of getting people to be bought into an omni-channel experience is understanding. And there's millions of those barriers, by the way, but I think that's one of the, you know, that's one of the big ones is getting the people in the business to think more about their contribution to that omni-channel experience for the customer. Jennifer, you clearly have a customer for life in Graham. So it's, it's good to be able to introduce the pair of you today. What about from your perspective? How do you manage CRM across all these different touch points of the omni-channel and from your perspective across international territories as well? Yeah, so I guess to to back up a little bit, I work at ASICS Digital and we are part of the ASICS family, but you can think of us as we truly are our own separate entity, kind of the center of excellence for the rest of the ASICS regions, if you will. And we are truly a technology company. So I think that we are in a very unique and awesome situation to truly be able to cut out all the red tape that you would find at typical corporations, how they are set up. There's no arguing between IT and marketing. I sit on a consumer platforms team where it is our job to make sure we are putting out all of the right technology, program, strategy, software for all the regions to be successful so we can take some of those bias and all of those things out of it. So in terms of managing across all the regions, of course, one of the things that came to mind as Graham was talking in terms of how we're set up and how businesses have been set up and we kind of get stuck in those routines, also taking into account the idea of data privacy and, and laws and different things like that. And just knowing that, of course, GDPR is very aggressive. The U.S. is getting to that point, making sure that your future-proofing your business and how you are collecting data and things like that. I actually spoke at this conference that I'm at. I spoke yesterday a lot in terms of, of data, data collection, in terms of CRM and 
loyalty. But there are a lot of different touch points and there are different touch points that are more popular or common and within different regions than there are in others. And so it's understanding the consumer in all the different regions, how they prefer to communicate, making sure that we do have that technology enabled in those areas and not just taking a look at behavioral and transactional data. It's making sure that you are putting empathy into your marketing too. And you're looking at these people as humans, not just as transactions, not as people who are browsing products on the website. We talk about, you know, big data being a big thing. That was a big buzzword, you know, five, six years ago. It's more about smaller data, making sure you have relevant data, making sure that data is refreshed, not just a set it and forget it big data warehouse. These people are more than just their transactions. And so we utilize a lot of vendor partners. And one of them puts together these beautiful interactive experiences. One of the experiences we have live is a runner persona quiz. And so a lot of people enjoy engaging and and, um, taking quizzes and things like that. We're not providing any sort of incentive for taking this quiz other than finding out what your persona is. But we're understanding more than just how often do you run? Why do you run? You know, what are the things that that motivate you? Asking different questions that aren't necessarily tied to a transaction. So making sure, of course, the transactional data, browse, all of those good things, how were they clicking on in emails? That's important. But it's also important to understand who they are as a person, especially since our purchase cycle is much longer than at some typical like fast fashion or things like that. So people typically buy one pair of running shoes a year. So knowing that and making sure that we are providing the customers with value outside of just transactions, rewarding them for engaging with us in different ways, whether that is tracking their run with RunKeeper, whether they are signing up for a race via race roster, are they, you know, just coming into the store and and browsing and taking a look? I wish that it was a black and white answer to, to that question about how do you manage all of these and especially across a global organization. But there's a lot of thought and a lot of working pieces that go into it. And it is never set it and forget it. It is always making sure that you are on top of things and always evolving. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mark, I don't know if you want to come in on some of the the topics that Jennifer has raised there. And I'll be keen to get your thoughts on in what way is the need to provide a consistent kind of personalized customer experience? How is that changing and evolving for brands today? Yeah, I absolutely love what Jennifer said about the, the need to take care collect and nurture small data these days, the often optimized refreshed data to keep it real, to make sure you're reflecting what people want as as their environment changes, as their circumstances change. So I'll tell you a very quick story about what a changing and evolving personalized customer experience means to me these days. Customers haven't stopped evolving and businesses are evolving as fast as they can to keep up. What we do very quickly in a nutshell is use first-party data, first-party referral data, which has its own unique characteristics and and benefits to really enhance the rest of the marketing stack. Not going to go on too much about Mention Me, but last week we had our customer conference advocacy engineered. One of my favorite practitioners 
came and did a closing slot. His name is Ash Schofield. He's the CEO of GifGaf. And anyone who from abroad who isn't aware of GifGaf, GifGaf spun out of O2 a long time, probably 10, 12 years ago now, as a customer-led, a member-led network. And so what they do is insane. They're advertising their promotions, their product, their offer, their solutions, their comms is all led by members. Members get more minutes and more rewards for helping other members. It's By the way, it's not a small business. It's a 500 million pound business. And I think the last two or three years, I think you do more than one hand to count the number of awards. It's one as number one network uh, in the UK. But what they do is insane. Because if you think about a customer newsletter, who, who here has been in charge at any time of a customer newsletter? It's a nightmare. Because you put out what you think a customer is going to want to know and some really cool stuff in a tone of voice and great design, great pictures, and you send it to 20 people to approve it, and everyone's got a piece and everyone's got a thing, and then the designer's not happy because you've ruined the thing, and it comes back to you, and seven weeks later, you just want the thing out. You just lost, you've lost your soul, and you just want the thing out there, and you want to forget it, and you've got to move on to the next one. The GAF is GIF GAF's customer newsletter. It was invented 10 years ago by customers. It was designed, not just suggested, but designed and written by customers. GIFGAF knows that any other network, you get on a helpline to solve a problem, you're going to be waiting for 20 minutes. Average time going online to post a problem with a GIFGAF service or a question, you get 20 seconds you wait before somebody leaps on to help you because they get rewarded for doing so, right? And it's communications, it's newsletter is headed up by members. That takes a ton of bravery, right? Brave enough that your customers are going to say good things or bad things, but you're going to be okay with them because that's your community. They exist because you've given them the platform. So don't be taking it away from them. That's their community, right? That's their, how they run it. And they run it from the very, very start. It's an amazing thing to, to, to watch. Now, if you, if you follow that through, we've got, a, um, we've got a client called Charlotte Tilbury, a global makeup, skincare, and beauty brand. One of its most reliable channels for acquiring high quality new customers is customers who are referred spend 39% more within the first six months and are six times more likely than the average to refer onwards through building a community of referral and advocacy. Now, 10 years ago, I was I was the editor at Marketing Week magazine. Never once wrote about advocacy, never once. The closest that we got was word of mouth, and even that didn't come up as a measurable, trackable, reliable acquisition channel. It was chance and hope and luck and cross your fingers and ask your agency. These days, advocacy is trackable, measurable, and drivable. So Charlotte Tilbury tells us, as well as driving significant revenue, they learn a ton about their customers, what content resonates best with specific audiences, and for us, we get to talk to Charlotte Tilbury about extended lifetime value. So not, not the person that spends 50 quid as opposed to the person that spends 30 quid. That's not your VIP. Your VIP is the 30 quid spender who refers six times and six of those refer twice and another two of those refer three times. That person holds such extended lifetime value that that suddenly becomes the person you focus on and prioritize and treat as a VIP and all those, you can leverage it in all those serious ways. That first party data for me is so rich that you're driving a personalized customer experience based on your customers' lives rather than what your first instinct was as a retailer. And that's that's how things are changing for me. 
Thanks for that, Mark. Jim, I'd love to come to you now and just talk about another pillar of best practice from your report, and that's around data collection. Could you tell us a little bit more about trends in data and how brands use it to inform their loyalty schemes? Look, I don't know about you. I want a brand to raise its hand when I need something without being asked. And not all brands have nailed it yet. And clearly, you have to collect a lot of the data. And we talked in the report about how retailers could potentially find it harder to access customer insights going forward. On the one hand, you have the oft-quoted demise of the cookie. On the other hand, the general public are more alert to the value of their data and the privacy concerns. And we spoke to Boots, Pete Markey, is the CMO of Boots, for the report. And he, he talked about how it's using its advantage card to offer bespoke pricing. And that way they get it at the right time in the right place. And there's more of a value exchange. And I, I loved to hear the example with GIFCAF earlier. And we see this as setting something of um, a trust continuum. It sounds a bit like a sci-fi movie, but the more you understand customers, the more they trust you and the richer the data sets you'll have access to. So in the case of Boots, they're having an even bigger role to play, I expect, with the rising cost of living. That's helping customers in their time of need. And, and you've got a better chance of building long-term loyalty. Absolutely. Jennifer, could I just come to you and just hear a little bit about data collection at ASICS and mainly how that feeds into your loyalty program, One ASICS? Yeah, so big point. A lot of what we've been talking about is first-party data, zero-party data, data collection in general at this conference that I've been at and just over the last year or so. I think one of the big things, regardless of the size of your company, the size of your team, All you have to do is ask for the information from consumers, especially if you have a really great following, you have loyalists, however you describe them. A lot of people will just give you information if you ask. You don't need to provide an incentive. Certainly, you can test that if you'd like. So it's as easy as asking. However, make sure that whatever data that you are asking for, you are going to use it in a meaningful and relevant way. And make sure if you're asking for things like birthday, do you need the year? So for example, we've talked about skincare beauty brands. The year that you were born could come into play for segmentation, especially if you're younger, you're you're acne prone skin. If you're getting older, it's about wrinkles and things like that. In terms of a running shoe, We don't really need that information. That's not going to change how we're going to speak to you. So in terms like that, where people can be sensitive, make sure if you're asking for birthday, you're telling them why. So in our case, it would be like provide birthday and we will send you a discount on your birthday. So making sure that you're cognizant that whatever data you're asking for, don't be greedy. Don't ask for things that you're not going to use because consumers know they're providing you that information. And if you're not using it, they're probably going to be less likely to give you information in the future or have a relationship with you. So certainly we do data collection in different ways. So we might do it through these interactive experiences I mentioned, through a sweepstakes, through email signup. We might ask you questions within welcome series. We might ask you questions within SMS or different types of ways. So certainly all of this information is valuable to us and does feed into our loyalty program. Our loyalty program is actually going through a bit of a a revamp, if you will, It's not ready for uh, consumer facing yet, but a lot of those things were taken into consideration. And just like what was mentioned, it's 
it's more than just the transaction. Customer lifetime value to us isn't who spends the most. It is who is engaging, again, with our RunKeeper app. Are they logging runs? Are they cu- you know, coming back? There's a lot of different things that go into it, but data is certainly very vital for our, our loyalty program. Graham, just to come back to you for a second, obviously the grocery supermarket sector is hugely competitive. What are your thoughts on how to engage and retain customers? Yes, yeah, so I think what Jennifer was saying there was uh, was, was spot on, and I think um, you know quite similar in terms of uh, our thinking within the the grocery sector. Customers are customers. We're the same customers. We shop multiple brands, and you know, so the, at the end of the day, we are the same people using different channels, uh, buying different products. But actually, uh, within the grocery sector, what I've experienced having moved from telco into grocery is that you know you see your customers far more often. Therefore, you've got far many more opportunities to build loyalty with them, but you've also got far many more opportunities to lose that loyalty and, and as you know many studies and books have, uh, have professed that it's far easier to lose than it is to to gain loyalty we're in this era generally speaking of where i think that technology can bring back a lot of trust that potentially has been lost through uh, the last few decades of trying to get information so that we can sell to people and all that kind of stuff. And there's a little bit of mistrust, I think, generally out there, isn't there, of, uh, you know, what's, what are you doing with my data? And I think that a lot of the innovation that's coming now around um, cybersecurity and also maybe the democratization of data through things like blockchain, for example, will actually be able to put the control back in, in customers' hands. But picking up on the loyalty piece, um, we have recently launched a loyalty scheme at Asda, and um, it's the first time that we've launched a loyalty scheme in the business, and it's been years in the making, and, and actually, you know, from a small test and learn is now ramping out across the business. And, and this, is, this is brilliant because it's really unique in the grocery space in that rather than it being points or anything like that, the customers get to add to their cash pot. So they've got their own personalized cash pot, which is built up through like individual missions that get uh, downloaded onto the app every week so you can earn extra money for buying particular products or going on particular missions and you know that cash pot then can be used by the customer whenever they want in the future it will be omnichannel at the moment it's just been trialed in a a number of stores but we'll be launching it on e-commerce as well very shortly and that enables customers to shop on multiple channels and be able to earn and spend the rewards that they gain through their own personalized way of interacting with the brand. So to the point Jennifer made there was a brilliant point on the fact that customers know whether you're doing something to actually genuinely help them or whether you're doing something because it's advantageous for you. And that's really important that you get that right. Some excellent points there. Thank you very much, Graham. Mark, I'd love to turn to you now and talk about data collection and how to interpret that data and use it effectively. What are your thoughts on, on how to do this? Whenever we talk about loyalty, my mind goes back to one one particular conference I hosted as, as Marketing Week editor, and I had a, about 50 CRM heads in Belgium. I came off stage and there was a tea break and there was four or five of them, some big brands that you'd all know well from the British high street. They were telling me that their loyalty schemes, one guy from a very, very heavyweight retailer said, our loyalty scheme sucks. It really does suck. And I said, why so bad? And he said, because... People don't come into our store looking for points. They just don't. They come into our store looking for help and product, if possible. But but they come into our store looking for our, our expertise and our help. And it was a DIY store. You know what? It's true. And it's really, like I said at, at the top, it's really easy to mistake a score and an uplift for loyalty and where data is getting better or use of data is getting better is in its application we've got a couple of clients who use the first party data we give them not 
specifically for referral. Almost referral and advocacy in this case is a byproduct. What they're really after is the nature of the first party data we're generating a ton of. We'll talk a little bit about this later when you come to talk about technology, but our integration with Amasis, one of the things that we're able to do is create a segment which Amasis can help plug into Facebook to create a lookalike audience, right? So suddenly you've got, these are our best spenders and our most identifiable loyal customers that love us and are prepared to go and shout to the rooftops about us. Let's find an audience that looks just like these guys and see if we can engage them. And Spoke and Seraphim use this methodology with us and a, and a digital agency called Nest Performance that we that we worked with. And by finding those lookalike audiences, I think um, saw a 65% increase in conversion versus standard seed audiences. And Seraphim reported back something like a 15% lower cost per acquisition. You're able to use the data well. We collect the data in our platform because it pours into us from brands. It takes some expertise and some some curiosity on the part of the marketer to work with us and say, what should we do next with it? And in an era where advertising and acquisition costs are spiraling and trust in a lot of different advertising channels is dwindling and, you know, you've got all sorts of economic challenges, we're finding that this is a way of generating organic growth for businesses, first-party data that you can use to sprinkle around your marketing stack and actually, advocacy and loyalty, as um, as, our, as our panel have said, it feels like a really, really brilliant place to be right now. Really brilliant place, really great time. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And you mentioned technology there. And I'd really like to round off this conversation today by focusing a little bit on technology. Jim, we've been referencing the consultancy report throughout this uh, conversation, retail experiences of the future. And we're talking about the, the pillars of best practice. The last one is the increasing role of technology in retail, what are some of the cutting edge technologies that brands are employing today? Yes, really good input from Anand Narang, who's uh, VP of Marketing and Customer Experience at Batter. And I know he's he's been on one of these podcasts before. He's a great guy. And he talked about how retailers could really benefit from going crypto. That's actually offering digital currency as an alternative to loyalty points. Certainly, if cryptocurrencies are gaining wider recognition, uh, it makes sense that that could potentially increase the relevancy of loyalty schemes. The ability to cash out your chips and use them to buy a ticket to see BTS play at a Korean pop band. Uh, That was the example we put in the report. Of course, all this comes with the advantage of being able to distribute and track how this currency is spent via the blockchain. So in creating an even better picture of the customer, AR and VR, you know, it's not new. And we've talked about examples like IKEA letting you position virtual furniture in your living room. In the report, we talked about how brands are going one step further, particularly using the likes of Tmall, which has the functionality to try on products in augmented reality. For a start, it feels more personal if you're spending lots of money to put your trust in the retailer, in this case, Alibaba and its Tmall luxury pavilion, but at the same time, it actually reduces the risk of shoppers returning the product, which can completely annihilate margins. And this also, of course, extends to live shopping or live streaming. And we talk a lot about that in the report too, how you can obviously use uh, influencers to connect with customers and, and, and get a more concrete look and feel of the product. Yeah, that's superb, Jim. Thanks very much. Mark, I'll give the final word to you on technology today in this podcast. I don't know if any of those things that Jim has just spoken about, like blockchain, are you know tools in your armory, but 
More than that, I want to know, well, what, what does this technology actually mean? What will it enable brands to do better? Because after all, you know, that's the main objective, isn't it? We're integrated with both SAP Commerce Cloud and Emasis. And we collect the data in our platform so we can identify brands' best customers that would otherwise not be visible. And, and, and you wouldn't understand necessarily our take on who should be prioritised from your segments. The integration with Amasis basically allows the brands to take that data and activate and leverage it in all sorts of serious ways. So let me give you a couple of use cases. Firstly, I've said that if you've got a referred person, the referred person gives their email and opts in, that email address gets passed to Amasis in real time. Now, that referred customer has a higher extended lifetime value. It's going to spend more and refer more. But they're not even a customer yet. They're an email address. They're a friend of a customer or a family member of a customer. But you've got that email address of someone that's opted in and who you've given a brilliant experience to. So it's now in your database. So first use case is CRM build. So global client for us increased their database size 60% in the first three months of working with the Amasis integration. Another use case is extended promotion. So the referral promotion, as you'd expect, normally sits on the website post-purchase. Amasis enables us to send emails to both the referred and the referrer. And brands that do this typically increase new customers coming in through referral by about 10%. And those reminders are really, really powerful because Amasis has the know-how to do all the tailoring of every email come to every person in such a personalized way that is super relevant to the point they are in the funnel. Let's say I've referred to you, Graham, and I've forgotten to redeem my little reward for referring you. Amasis would send me an email. It's a very powerful, engaging experience, a reminder to the referee to drive up the purchase rate. So we did a client A-B test with a very, very big client. Half the people did receive this reminder email after forgetting to redeem their reward, and half people didn't. And those that did generated 7% more return visits and a 4% AOV uplift. And in real time, we know so much about what you share, when you share. We know that Ted Baker customers, for example, are far more interested in sharing in order to get their friend a reward than they are to receive a reward themselves. For some reason, I don't know, maybe Ted Baker customers are very, very generous. But it means you can always focus or switch your focus from those that have bought to those that can shout loudly, to those that can share quietly. And it means you can do a whole number of things. And one of the things I love best is that luxury brands are working with us, not necessarily to redeem coupons, but to do great things like plant a tree in your name if you buy this product now. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can tap into making participation a part of your marketing. I've got a very emerging theory, which is not proven at all, although I have written it down in some publications. But it says that I think there's an appetite for among customers, among consumers, to be participating in the marketing process these days to be sharing, talking about, referring. We all know that we've got all sorts of reports that say, you know, 90-odd percent of people referred a brand or a service or a product in the last month. Turns out a piece of research we did last month with one poll reveals that referral is the most trusted advertising channel, and yet 96% of marketers are neglecting it. So we call that the advocacy gap, right? My, my theory is that people want to be participating in this process. They don't want to be marketed to anymore. They want a part to play for the brands that they love and the products that they really work with and use and think, you know, my nan would love this, my best friend would love that. They want to be part of that. And I think what we're doing with advocacy and loyalty, by the way, is shifting marketing from 
brand-led to customer-led. And I think it's very powerful. Yeah, that's superb. Thanks for those insights, Mark. And I think the biggest takeaway from me is there are some huge wins for brands out there, as you've highlighted with some of those statistics, some huge wins if they can utilize and harness this technology in the right way. So yeah, thanks again for those insights. And that's where we'll have to leave the discussion for today. I want to say a big thank you to all of my guests, to Mark, to Jim, to Jennifer and Graham. And if you'd like to download the report that we've been speaking about with Jim, please visit sap.com forward slash omnichannel dash retail. We always want to hear what you think. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. The links for these can be found at the top of the page at csuitepodcast.com. You can also catch up with all of our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.